Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. In a world torn by revolution, one man's relentless ambition will help forge a nation. This winter, embark on an epic 12-part journey through the tumultuous times of America's founding in our new series, Hamilton at War. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order, give fire! Bodies disappeared in a gray cloud that turned red. Hamilton at War is not just an audio series, it's an immersive journey through time. The Revolutionary Series begins November 1st on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. Juno Beach. I'm normally not, but I'm afraid that stuff will make me feel brave or some bloody thing like that. Private Josh Honan. Like Lord Lovett at Sword, the British officers on Juno were determined to show their cool under fire. As the 4th Royal Marines approached Juneau Beach, their landing craft came under machine-gun fire. All the commandos dropped to the deck, except their adjutant, Captain Daniel Flunder. Swagger stick under his arm, he paraded on the foredeck, saying, after the war, I thought it was the thing to do. This was the start of the Juneau Beach, the beach between sword on the left, or east, and gold on the right, or west. Flunder was preceded by an aerial and naval bombardment, as ineffective as the Omaha Beach attacks. The bombardment ended at 7.30 a.m., the time the landing craft were supposed to be on the beach. They were late because of the running sea and tides. A Private Henry remarked, All the softening did was alert the enemy of the landing and give them the chance to be settled in for our guys to run into. A member of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles sniffed, the bombardment has failed to kill a single German or silence one weapon. The mostly Canadian force landed in an area similar to the landings at Sword, fortified residential houses on the town of Cuso. Fighting was hand-to-hand -hand urban warfare. The battle lasted only two hours, though the mopping up was sometimes brutal. Canadians are not generally considered warlike but Canadian combat troops in World War II were all volunteers. If you didn't want to fight, something else would be found for you to do. A coxswain on a landing craft was searching for souvenirs soon after the fighting ebbed when he saw Canadian soldiers mark six German soldiers behind a sand dune. Thinking it might be a good place to search for souvenirs, the coxswain followed, only to find the Germans dead with their throats slit. He turned away. Sick as a parrot, I didn't get my tin hat. Perhaps the Canadians' behavior was a reaction, as they wanted revenge for the Dieppe raid, where 60% of the Canadian attacking force of 5,000 men was killed, wounded, or missing. Also, Juno inflicted the highest casualties of the three British beaches, with 340 killed, 574 wounded, and 47 taken prisoner. 
Casualty figures at Juneau were similar to Omaha, with 1 in 19 becoming a casualty on Omaha and 1 in 18 at Juneau. The difference was that 40,000 men landed on Omaha and 21,000 on Juneau. Also, the geography was different. On Omaha, the men had to get past the beach, gain the sea well, and then scale the bluffs. There were no bluffs at Juneau. Finally, the attackers at Juneau had the funnies and the maneuvering room to use them. At Juneau, the funnies included fascine tanks, flail tanks, bridge tanks, bulldozer tanks, and flamethrower tanks, trailing armored fuel tanks holding 400 gallons of fuel, supplied to the flamethrower by a pipeline running under the tank. Some of the tanks were bogged down in trenches or anti-tank fortifications, but the majority came through blasting and scraping the seawall away, opening up the streets of the city. One tank went down into a tank trap hole. A girder tank came along, placing its bridge over the hole and the sunken tank. The bridge was removed from the tank and improved by engineers later in the day. The bridge would be in use until 1976. When the bridge was finally dismantled, the tank in the hole was discovered, raised up, and now sits as a monument just outside Kursel. Like Omaha, rough seas delayed the landings and the aerial and naval bombardments were ineffective. Reefs on the eastern side of the landing area ripped open and sank landing craft. One company lost half its men, a similar percentage as Company A, the Bedford Boys on Omaha Beach. There were also mistakes made with men like Captain Daniel Flunder taking drastic action. A floating tank came ashore, racing up the beach and running over the dead and wounded. Flunder saw what was going on and ran down the beach yelling, They're my men! smashing his swagger stick on the tank. The men in the tank were oblivious, so Flunder pulled out a grenade, pulled the pin, and placed the grenade in a wheel sprocket, blowing off the tank tread to stop the carnage. After the beach was cleared, the army moved inland, fighting its way through the town of Saint-Aubin-Sumer. Units then headed east to hook up with the British landing on Sword, seven miles away. Sergeant Tom Plum, also of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, was at the wheel of a mortar carrier. The carrier in front of him was ordered by the LCT captain to disembark. The driver said the water was too deep. The captain insisted. The driver obeyed and sank in ten feet of water. The captain ordered Plum to follow. Plum and the other drivers refused the order and were threatened with court-martial by the captain. The men stood their ground, and the captain found a shallower spot to unload the carriers. Plum learned later that the captain received a dishonorable discharge. Another Canadian, Private Josh Honan, hit the beach and raced for the seawall. He collapsed next to two other soldiers, one of whom pulled out a flask and offered Honan a drink. Honan declined, and the soldier was offended, asking if Honan was a teetotaler. Honan answered, I'm normally not, but I'm afraid that stuff will make me feel brave or some bloody thing like that. Private Honan raced into the town. The guns fell silent, and the citizens appeared. A barber offered Honan a drink, which he again refused, but seeing the barber shop said, But I could do with a shave. Honan sat down in full soaking battle dress and got his shave. The beach was cleared in less than two hours. Correspondents on Juno Beach had no communication devices except two baskets of carrier pigeons. The correspondents wrote quick stories and released the birds, with half of them heading for the German lines. 
Reporter Charles Lynch of Reuters stood on the beach yelling, Traitors! Damn traitors! Four of the pigeons reported in at the Ministry of Information in London in less than two hours. Waves of men kept coming in and moving quickly off the beach. By noon, the entire Canadian 3rd Division was ashore and headed for the ambitious goal set by Montgomery to capture Caen. They didn't make it. The whole army seemed to run out of energy and stopped for tea. Two brothers connected and we had our tea together and cautioned each other to be careful like brothers do. Then we started on our way. The British and Canadian stops to brew up tea drove the American officers to distraction. Others were slowed down by the hunt for German souvenirs, such as pistols, helmets, and anything with a swastika on it. At the end of the day, forward units in the north were three miles inland, although still four miles from Caen. In the south, the first Hussars tank units were nine miles inland and across the Caen Bayou Railway, the only group to meet their objective. Having outtraced the infantry, the tanks had to pull back. They settled in, expecting a German counterattack. The Canadians got payback for Dieppe, but the Canadians did not hook up with the British coming off gold. The Germans saw their opportunity and took it, or tried. Von Rundstedt had a premonition about the invasion. He ordered two panzer divisions, the 12th and the Panzer Lair, moved from Caen up the coast early in the morning of June 6th. Headquarter countermanded his orders and Hitler slept. Finally, at four in the afternoon, Hitler released the tanks. It was all too late, with neither division making the invasion area that day. The 21st were caught in a traffic jam of departing citizens in Caen. They pulled out and went around the city but lost precious time. Rommel arrived back at his headquarters at six o'clock p.m. A quick survey of the situation indicated the 12th and Panzer Lair would not be factors. But Rommel said, if the 21st Panzer can make it, we might just be able to drive them back in three days. The 21st lined up and advanced on the split between the British and Canadian landing forces. But British and Canadian artillery and anti-tank weapons covered the split and opened up, destroying six tanks before retreat was ordered. The delay in releasing the 12th and the Panzer Lair and the difficulty the 21st had reaching the coast resulted in a doomed piecemeal attack, squandering the only real tank opportunity the Germans had on D-Day. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.